A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcoming back to At The Movies, Sarah Watt and Doug Dillerman, another three films all very different. We're going to start with one that's had a lot of uh, pre-publicity. There's a Kiba connection too, I think, A Star Is Born. Doug, what's, well, we kind of know what this is about. Clearly it's a remake. Uh, yeah, we've seen it quite a few times, but in the latest take on uh, this classic tale of a talented young ingenue in the uh, older star that lifts her to the limelight, uh, Bradley Cooper, directing for the first time, uh, takes the leading role as veteran musician Jackson Maine, who one night by chance discovers uh, Allie, played by Lady Gaga, and besotted by her stunning voice and hidden songwriting chops, he takes her under his wing. I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Almost every single person has told me they liked the way I sounded, but that they didn't like the way I look. I think you're beautiful. Hey. What? I just want to take another look at you. In all the good times I find myself longing for change. Here's what we're going to do. You come sing that song that I love. No, I can't do that. Here, come on, here we go. <laughs> look at me. All you got to do is trust me. That's all you got to do. Okay, Sarah, does this live up to the hype? I liked virtually everything about A Star Is Born. Uh, I'm probably somewhat disposed to this sort of movie anyway. I like them big. I like a, a big sort of classic, what I would consider to be an Oscar movie. But here we have two terrific performances. As, as noted by director Bradley Cooper himself, he's, he's starring in his own movie. And, of course, the wonderful Lady Gaga, who, interestingly, here she chooses to be billed as Lady Gaga rather than her real name, Stephanie Germanotta. Now, Cooper's done an amazing job, considering this is his directorial debut, and I think he shows great talent here, not just in directing actors, because, of course, Lady Gaga is no shrinking violet uh, when it comes to doing what she does and what she doesn't want to do, but also all the other aspects of the film. I, I thought that the photography was amazing, the music is sensational, and personally, I found it to be a really well-edited narrative. So this makes me excited to see what Cooper would do next. Yeah, it's uh, for a first-time director, especially one who's an actor, I'm always a bit wary. And um, I was really so pleasantly surprised. I'm not somebody who feels the need to seek out every Oscar film. There's a good chance I might have skipped this one if it wasn't part of my remit. And uh, I'm no particular Lady Gaga fan. I'm indifferent to Bradley Cooper. And particularly in the first half of the film, I was really quite besotted with it. Um, There's a really slow, unforced naturalism that just hooks you in and lets you be with these two characters as they meet and over one night uh, get to know each other and then uh, get swept up in each other's arcs. And part of it is Bradley Cooper's been really smart. He's hired DOP Matthew Libatique, who's done Darren Aronofsky's films, and editor Jay Cooper, who did uh, Into the Wild and did the last three David O. Russell films. And in fact, I found out that uh, Bradley Cooper was hanging out in the editing room on the last few 
of those films from Silver Linings So Playbook. obviously developed a relationship and thought, I want to work with this guy. Yeah, and mm. also seems to have inherited some of David O. Russell's uh, facility for directing overlapping dialogue. You have such a sense of it's so naturalism. Natural. There's not yeah. any of this waiting for one character to deliver a line before another. And especially Lady Gaga, who even her most ardent fans wouldn't rush to the word natural to uh, as yeah, an adjective true. for her, um, comes across just so natural in this film. And, you know, if the whole film was just like the first half and kind of like a Richard Linklater, Jim Jarmusch hangout movie... Um, it would still be delightful, wouldn't it? It wouldn't just be delightful. It would probably be one of my top ten films of the year. Yeah. Um, they, they really have a wonderful rapport. And, um, it, and it's, you, as you say, Doug, it is so notable that Lady Gaga is probably the most constructed celebrity today. And there's been a lot in the, uh, in the papers around the fact that she didn't want to take her makeup off. And Bradley Cooper, as her director, said, I want you to be um, clean-faced for this, fresh-faced. And she had to have sort of slightly mousy brown hair and none of the construct of Gaga. And she delivers an extraordinary performance, absolutely naturalistic and yet beguiling at the same time. So this is not one of those ugly duckling. It, it tries to be an ugly duckling becomes a swan sort of story. But in reality, her natural, Stephanie Germanotta's natural being is absolutely intoxicating. Her charisma and her voice. I mean, that's one of the things is you have to believe that this you know, mousy person has the voice and the songwriting chops. And even as somebody who's not naturally drawn to pop music, the first time you hear this song that becomes shallow, uh, sung tentatively in a parking lot, Mm. it sticks with you. And and kudos to the songwriters behind uh, the film, including Lady Gaga and Mark Ronson and several Mm. others who managed to concoct these songs that whether you like them or not personally, are very believable that they could have the effect in this world of the film. I'm somebody who traditionally loves films with music and obviously loves musicals. And I think what was really notable for me is I enjoyed every single musical item in this film, even though I hadn't heard the music before. And as you know, I'm not really that big on man with guitar kind of music. Yeah, I was wondering what you think about that, because it is um, Bradley Cooper's uh, taken the lead, sort of Chris Christopherson did the uh, third version of A Star is Born with Barbara Streisand in the 70s, and he's gone down the country road with a bit more rock. He's got uh, Neil Young's backing band, The Promise of the Real, who's fronted by uh, Lucas Nelson, the son of Willie Nelson. And so they, you've got the sort of Steve Earle, Neil Young. I think you even he's really to good. Soundgarden. But yeah. Brad, yeah, Bradley Cooper is fantastic, singing his own songs. At first I was thought, wow, what a powerful, what a powerful movie, great performances. I wonder if that's really him. And it soon became clear that it was incredibly accomplished in that regard and I loved all the songs despite having not heard them before. It sounds like they've made it their own without messing up a really great story. Yes and no. Um, uh, yeah, I've, I'm a big fan of the 1954 version, which played at the uh, Civic and I think at the Embassy in Wellington a couple of years back, which features uh, Judy Garland and James Mason. Uh, and it, that's really a conventional Hollywood melodrama and there's certain points plot points that are really melodramatic Mm. and I don't want to spoil any of those for first time viewers but I think in the second half sort of the naturalistic feel that they have of it did for me start to grate against what the story needed to do to maintain those plot points and I I did feel there are certain beats that the film hits that you think 
well, come on now, that sound, feels like a little bit of a cliche. But, of course, it has to be faithful to the, the, the you know, this is the fourth iteration, it has to be faithful, doesn't it, to the plot to a large degree. And I forgave it, therefore. Uh, I didn't as much, and part of it is because the two scenes for me that I love most in The Star is Born 54 are with Judy Garland in the second half of the film and really close to her. And I find in the second half, as Ali's star is shining... In this, lace- in in this latest most story. recent one, mm. um, we're much closer to Jackson, Maine, mm. and we lose a little bit of the proximity to Ali's uh, character that would give us the insight as she potentially rejects the, her true songwriting in favor of what this really sort of bad pop song about how cute you look in those jeans mm. that's kind of played for a bit of a punchline. That might be my only reservation about the film, and you've just touched upon it, is that towards the end, and certainly next day, when I was thinking about the film, mm. I thought, well, look, I loved it last night, but actually perhaps this isn't as feminist a film as it ought to be in the 21st century. And it felt as though there was there were some of her moves, her, uh, I don't mean dance moves, but the plot points that you think, really, young woman, powerful young woman, would you have put up with that or would that have happened? And I wondered whether the, just the whole notion of a man making a young woman a star, even though she's obviously talented and has the chops herself, is that something that grates a little bit? But then again, I forgave it because I, I come back to, well, this is a star is born, this is how the story goes, and I think they handle it admirably. Yeah, and it probably won't be the last time today we discover whether an inherited trope from a film uh, is something that we can forgive or not. I mean, if you're looking for feminist films, there's a great series at the Academy right now of 20th century female filmmakers. But if you're willing to accept this as two characters, I think it works really strongly. And I was really surprised that no no matter how much I resisted at the end, I even shed a little tear. I mentioned at the top, a Kiwi connection, we always love this, who was in A Star is Born from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Yes, Marlon Williams turns up and has his uh, little turn in the spotlight, and that was uh, not only a really pleasant surprise when we heard him singing, but when he uh, opens his mouth, the uh, pack preview audience went wild, as uh, <laughs> Kiwi New Zealand so often do. Yes, 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 they do tend to get a bit excited about that sort of thing. Yeah, and he does have a uh, terrific voice, and it's great to see him on the international stage here. Fantastic. A Star is Born. Now, Westwood, Sarah, you are a documentary lover. What's this about? This documentary charts the life and rise of Vivian Westwood, punk rock icon and fashion designer who has been simultaneously fated and rejected by the British fashion establishment during her career that spans over 40 years. I think what you'll have to let me do is let me just talk and just get it over with. She's a rebel, isn't she? Punk rocker. Provocative. Iconic. She was like our queen. It's hard to imagine that one designer could be all of those things. Vivian Westwood. Vivian Westwood. There's Vivian, the fashion designer. There's Vivian, the campaigner. And then there's Vivian, the person. I was really a woman on a mission. Designer and activist Dame Vivian Westwood joined Greenpeace today. All my motivation has been because I've been so upset about what can happen to people in the world. That's had something to do with my fashion clothes. Every time I design something, it has to have character. I think some things were not exactly how she had envisaged them. 
I'm not happy with my company. It actually expanded too much for me. The connections aren't here. So I don't know if I want to show any of this shit. Sarah, as, uh, as we mentioned, you love documentaries. How does this one stack up? Yeah, this documentary, it's, it's pretty traditional in its format. You know, the usual talking head interviews, there are old photographs, there's some footage of some of her fashion shows. I think what I really liked about it is it's punctuated by interviews with the, the grande dame herself, now aged 71, I believe, and as bolshy as ever. And it's quite cute, and this is given away in the trailer, quite cute how she protests right from the outset. Oh, this is going to be boring to watch. Can't we just skip over this bit? Or can't we just get on with it? And that immediately brings her personality right into the film. Um, and uh, and to be fair, you, you you get the feeling that she's not being disingenuous when she's saying, "Can we get can we get this over and done with?" Yeah, it's interesting that you found it traditional. I want to I want to step up because I I actually really love documentaries. Even though my mother in law, when she heard me talk about RBG the other week, said, "Oh, so you hate documentaries?" And I don't. Um, Brimstone and Glory, which is coming out next week, is one of my favorite films of the year. Minding the Gap, which played at the film festival, but I do hate these films that are a parade of talking heads. Mm. And this film could have been that if Vivian Westwood hadn't refused to do that pretty much and derails any attempt to just give a few canned sound bites about the Sex Pistols or what have you. And what that does to the film is it forces them to bring in a lot of observational footage, and that's what I really enjoyed is the fly-on-the-wall footage. Um, we just heard a bit at the end of that trailer of Vivian Westwood looking at one of the fashion collections, and uh, we get quite a bit more, some of it not very flattering as she kind of uh, fumbles a big important meeting with her uh, international buyers, mm. and uh, and and that to me really um, helped quite a bit. Now I'm. You're quite right. Those insights, you're absolutely yeah. right. The fly-on-the-wall insights are actually the most fascinating bits of the documentary, I would say, where they're utterly candid and, and you, you see sort of her frailties or her, her doubts either about her work or, as you say, the, the fashion and that sort of thing. Overall, though, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to come back at you. I find pretty much all documentaries fascinating. And to, to start with, I definitely thought, great, I'm going to learn all about her life. And, and this, is, this is fascinating. Um, and it was nice to be reminded of her interactions with uh, Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols and the various uh, stores in London's high streets and all that. And I was like, oh, yep, great. Oh, it turns out she's a single mom for most of her um, early career and that sort of thing. But ultimately, to me, it felt like like a really standard documentary. And because it didn't have any of the flair of, I, mean, I hate to say it, but it's inevitably going to be compared to McQueen, the recent uh, fashion documentary about Alexander McQueen. Um, and I know that felt a bit on the nose to some viewers, possibly mm. the one that I'm looking at at the moment mm. with its pounding music and its flashy chapter breaks. But by comparison, I found McQueen deeply affecting, profoundly fascinating, and I didn't quite get that from Westwood in the end. Yeah, I, I think for me, the personal journey of Vivian Westwood as somebody who's still vital in her 70s. I mean, one thing she talks about often in the film is people whose thinking hasn't changed. And mm. she's, uh, whether it was in the late 70s, realizing that punk was not something that was permanently revolutionary, but a fashion style that could be co-opted. And so shifting her fashion style to her more recent um, moves. I mean, it's telling that the subtitle of the film is icon punk activist, mm. and it doesn't have the word designer in there, and that she's now more worried about whether capitalism is necessarily um, going to destroy the climate and her complicity in that as part of an international corporation 
And that, to me, is more interesting than somebody who's not a clothes horse, more of a clothes buggy, I suppose, or something. See, I found Um, her environmental activism less compelling. And I am not casting aspersions. It is not for me to say, you know, how, again, ingenuous or disingenuous she's being. I think she really cares, and I think it's very telling that she often says, I got into this because I'm worried about the state of the world and the people making decisions, and, and I think that's admirable. But... I mean, I, th- I think we'd both agree that if what you're looking for is a linear progression of Westwood's fashion and a real understanding of what she's contributed there, it's going to come up wanting. And it is more a bit scattershot and it isn't as well crafted as it could be. But I felt that some of that uh, uncontrolled energy was befitting the subject. Right. Complete change of pace. Halloween. This is <laughs> this is from your part of the world, Doug. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm summary, not, it, please. Well, we do have another strong woman at the front of this. Uh, Forty years after Michael Myers killed five people in Haddonfield, survivor Laurie Strode has armed herself to the teeth and obsessively prepared for his possible return, alienating her daughter in the process. And then when Myers escapes detention and goes on a killing spree, Strode must protect her daughter and granddaughter and put a stop to the boogeyman once and for all. Hello, Michael. I have something you might like to see. Everyone in my family like turns into a nutcase this time of year. Yeah, I mean your grandmother is Lori Strode. She was almost murdered. Wasn't it her brother? Who murdered all those babysitters? No, it was not her brother. That's something that people made up. Do you know that I pray every night that he would escape? Who the hell did you do that for? So I can kill him. Oh, you set the scene so well for us there. And the trailer, Doug, you're the horror buff, I think, in the room. What do you make of it? Yeah, and I think there'll be less controversy on that than uh, your last assertion. Look, I think it's the film that Halloween fans have been waiting for, and and they've had to put up with a lot over the years. There's been increasingly misguided sequels. There's been reboots. There's I'm I'm actually a bit fond of Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, which uh, casts away Michael Myers entirely in favor of uh, weaponized Halloween masks. Um, But for the most part, it's been a long-suffering fan base, and... The filmmakers David Gordon Green and his writing partner Danny McBride have quite wisely uh, jettisoned all of that conflicting and confusing history and just said the first movie happened, none of the rest happened, and let's play as much as we can to the emotional truth of what it would mean to be Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, 40 years after this, and what it would mean for her to be preparing for this return and for this return to happen. Now, it's really besotted with John Carpenter's original and indebted to it. And indeed, Carpenter's come on, come back on the stage for this and given it his blessing. And um, I would say for me, its strong suits are the Carp- uh, John Carpenter's music. I thought the soundtrack was fabulous. And I know that that's directly from the original. So I would give it a thumbs up for soundtrack. Yeah, the score is bigger and better. The body count, of course, is higher. The signature tracking shot 1978. We start with a famous tracking shot 2018. It's, it's put in the middle here, but it's longer, more complex, digitally assisted. Um, you get your pop culture comedy. You get 
um, uh, and a few really striking uh, tension and suspense scenes, and there's one involving a motion sensor. Um, what I do wonder is for people who aren't intrinsically horror fans, you know, there is a question these years. There's been a few recent horror films from, you know, Get Out to Babadook to uh, It Follows, and even The Purge that take in current events and themes and build something more that potentially a non-horror viewer could get into. And did you find anything that brought you into this film at all? Hi, my name's Sarah, and I'm the non-horror aficionado <laughs> in the room. Um, look, no, as, you know, as I say, to be, to be fair, I'm not mad on horror films, but I just found the film completely distasteful with no redeeming features whatsoever. And I appreciate this is more your jurisdiction in, in saying, Doug, whether this, is, um, whether this Halloween is a good example of the genre or not. But, yeah, I much prefer my horror films a bit meta and very clever. Um, I've been hugely impressed and greatly enjoyed the likes of A Quiet Place, um, Cabin in the Woods several years back, and, and Get Out more recently. Um, and while I'm less keen on the conjurings of this world, I do at least see why they're popular. Now, my all-time favourite horror is A Nightmare on Elm Street. While I, I choose not to stay in cabins in the woods or visit creepy hotels, you see, I can't help falling asleep. We're human beings. And to me, there's nothing so clever as making the very premise of a, a horror film uh, contingent on something that affects everyone who watches it. So those get the big tick of clever, meta, like Scream was all those years ago. This one feels to me like a film from 1978, probably shot with slightly slightly better um, production values uh, and, uh, and nothing else about it that makes it interesting or new to me. And I'm not in it intrinsically for the suspense or the scares. And, of course, my biggest issue with it is the depiction of mental illness, and in particular the patients at the mental institution that Myers has been incarcerated in for f the last 40 years. Now, this was hinted at in the trailer. There's a, a ridiculous and completely offensive opening scene where Myers is standing impassively in the exercise yard and several of his fellow prisoners are yelping and moaning and, and, and laughing and gradually getting hysterical because, of course, he's the alpha male in this pack. And to be honest with you, I'm just sick and tired of psychiatric hospitals and those who experience mental illness being used as a trope in horror films. And, and all the more, actually, since we watched this during Mental Health Awareness Week, which I realise isn't going to affect everybody, but it felt particularly galling. I just feel as though in, in the 21st century, 2018, can we not have made some inroads um, towards reducing the stigma around mental illness as a horror trope? Well, and I think... There are slight attempts to recouch that. For instance, it turns out that when the inmates break out, as they do, spoiler alert. Uh, well, he has some to them, escape somehow, yeah, doesn't yeah. he? So that's uh, Some of them are, like, chasing after butterflies, and they're all actually quite harmless, where in the first one there's, you know, just a more generalized sense of menace across all of them. And so... Can I, I, can I just say, because yeah. I'm mindful, there will be listeners who are shaking their fists and saying, yes, but 40 years ago, that's where we last saw Michael Myers. He was locked up, so of course you've got to go mm. from there. And I, and I do get that, um, but I still have these objections. Over to you. Yeah, and I do think there are films that can... I mean, there's other slasher films like Hush and Don't Breathe that have come out recently, and one might really quibble if you're a horror buff and say they're more home invasion than slasher, which, fine. But there's still... Uh, made by genre directors who are doing terrific thrills that maybe aren't quite as retrograde 
as what you're complaining about. And there's also recent films that are really pushing out the horror envelope. Mandy, which is coming back to cinema soon. The Endless, which played this year. Um, even The Wailing, or Train to Busan to a lesser extent. But there's still a lot of innovative films out there. And I Would you consider this Halloween to be... Innovative? Mm. Well, it's interesting because I did at first feel like, oh, you know, what they're doing with Jamie Lee Curtis's character is really clever. And then at a certain point, I'm like, oh, it's a bit like Sarah Connor. Mm. And and then I'm like, oh, maybe it's not that in- innovative. And, you know, you do have the three women, um, the Jamie Lee Curtis, the daughter and the granddaughter coming together. And uh, But, you know, female empowerment and, you know, getting the last, the final girl is turned to the final girls in this. And so... We've seen... And so, yeah, we've seen that before. So this that yeah. isn't particularly new or clever. And she has her Michael Myers proof bunker, which, you know, get, if I were designing one, I'd have a, a couple fewer blind corners and closets and rooms full of mannequins. But it was <laughs> that kind of realizing, oh, we've had Sarah Connor, we've had Ripley, you know, from the Aliens movies. And actually... Perhaps we're protesting a bit too much to try to declare it original. And, you know, it's the film Halloween lovers will enjoy. It's probably the second best in the franchise with Michael Myers. Um, but, you know, and and this is far from the only film that's guilty of recycling the past over and over. How many sequels have we had this year? How many Disney movies are we getting, getting live action versions of that will then get animated remakes that will then get live action versions of those animated remakes? So we have a lot of... Recycling, and it feels a bit unfair to pick on Halloween specifically for that, but I it doesn't feel unfair to you. No, it's not unfair to me. There are better examples of the horror genre that are coming out, and uh, therefore I think if you, if you can't beat them or join them, don't play. Thank you both so much. Sarah Watt, Doug Dillerman, this is your last time for At The Movies. Uh, Simon Morris back next week. Really enjoyed your reviews. Had lots of fan mail too. So how can people keep in touch and access your reviews between now and uh, over summer? Because I'm wanting to bring you back to have a chat to us about all those summer films on Summer Times on RNZ. But between now and then, how can we keep abreast of your sometimes agreements and sometimes disagreements (laughs) over films? So this being the 21st century, I guess everybody's got a podcast or two up their sleeves. So I have to give a plug for a podcast I'm involved uh, in, not with Doug, but uh, with a couple of school teacher pals, because I'm a school teacher by day, and it's called Cinema in Context. And our slightly different take on films, we, we record every single month. We've done 30 episodes so far, and we look at a current release and then um, an older film that has some sort of connection to the current release, be it the same director, same sort of genre, uh, possibly a same actor playing a similar role, that sort of thing. So that's cinema in context. Otherwise, for me, I'm on Twitter as at Honey Hoxley. And uh, I'm on Twitter as well as Dilla Monster, and I tend to review most of what I see on the uh, Letterboxd, which is a New Zealand social network for film lovers. And I also do a monthly uh, film newsletter called Monster Lookout, which is uh, the link to that on Twitter, or you can go to tinyletter.com slash Doug Dilliman. And uh, we've enjoyed this quite a lot, and we may keep up this conversation. We started a podcast of, back earlier in the year called Married to the Movies, which we put aside, but uh, we might uh, just keep going with a few thoughts here and yes, there. We'll be getting back on that wagon after this. So it's been great. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to (laughs) pretend that I don't, right? Hold it in, hold it. 
and our current faves. Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.